0: Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be considering this morning verses 19 through verse 26 of Philippians 1. But I think I'm going to begin reading at verse 12 and read through verse 26. So once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition." Not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. If I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the truth of your holy word. And we are again mindful of how your word is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And we look to it to be guided and to be fed and to be encouraged, to be challenged. And so we just pray that as your word goes forth in the power of the Spirit that it truly would go and reach deep into our hearts. And we pray that it would truly find that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in that challenging proverbial place? Between a rock and a hard place. Well, it's not a, a great place to be. As oftentimes when we uh, think of such a dilemma, of course it's, it's in negative terms. That is, no matter which way you go or, or what choice you make, you're going to lose something. And, and the consequences are going to certainly be unpleasant. But sometimes... These dilemmas can be in positive terms, kind of like a win win situation. That is, either option or choice will lead to pleasant outcomes. And an example might be if you're having to decide between two uh, uh, solid job offers, right? And the other one, it doesn't matter, they're both good offers. Though this is certainly better than the negative alternative well, it's often not exactly any easier to decide which you should do. In fact, sometimes it can be even more difficult. In such cases, it reminds us of the desire the Apostle Paul had for the Philippians back in verse 10, where he said that they might have the wisdom to discern not so much between what is good and what is bad, but that they would approve what is excellent, or that they might discern what is actually best. Well, it's this kind of dilemma that the Apostle Paul finds himself in in our passage this morning. Paul is hard-pressed. He's hard-pressed between two very good possibilities. Further advancing the gospel or enjoying the blessing of eternal life in the Lord's glorious presence. Now, even though he's under great pressure, he's actually filled with great joy because he knows that either way, however things go, he knows and he's confident that Jesus Christ will be exalted. Paul's joy is is spurred on by, by the confidence that he has knowing that God is surely in control of all things and that the good news of the gospel will continue to go forth despite his imprisonment and despite those who proclaim it out of selfish ambition as we considered last time. As a result of this, Paul declares at the end of verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in this, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And so it doesn't matter whether it's false motives or it is done in truth. It doesn't matter, Paul says, because Christ is still being proclaimed. But then he continues... He continues to express his joy as he now looks to his own situation, saying in verse "For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul has a confident assurance that God will be true to his promise to work out all things for his good and for God's glory. Now two things Paul mentions here which aid his assurance... Are first of all, the, the faithful prayers of the, folk, of the Philippian believers. And then secondly, the sustaining support and provision of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now earlier, Paul had mentioned that he, faithfully, that he faithfully remembers the Philippian believers in prayer when he prays. Whenever he prays, he remembers them. And here he acknowledges the prayers that they, he knows that they faithfully offer up on his behalf. Now such mutual intercessory prayers certainly should be a foundation for any congregation of God's people. Whether it's the officers of the church praying uh, regularly for the members of the church, or the members praying for the officers of the church, or each member praying for one another. A congregation which prays with and for one another will be greatly strengthened and edified and Paul is experiencing this great blessing now as he's uh, encouraged knowing that the Philippian believers are praying for him. And he knows this, of course, because they also sent Epaphroditus to him to encourage him and Epaphroditus would have communicated to him, yes, they do pray for you and they remember you and they also sent him gifts to support his ministry. And so Paul is confident then that God will hear and answer their prayers. In fact, God's already answering their prayers as Paul is sustained by the all-sufficient grace and strength of the Holy Spirit that uh, is provided to him. Spirit uh, helps him endure even this difficult time of imprisonment. Later in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul will proclaim, "...I know how to be abased and I know how to abound." Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul knows the reason that he's endured this far is because the Holy Spirit has sustained and strengthened him in every situation, whether it's been a a blessed situation or even now, In this time of suffering, as he's sitting in prison, not only in answer to his own prayers, but also in answer to the prayers of the Philippian believers who have faithfully supported his ministry, Paul has this confidence that the Lord would sustain him. And so, with certain expectation and hope, Paul knows that all will work out for his deliverance or his his salvation. But with what follows at the end of verse 20 when Paul says, whether by life or by death, well, we note that the deliverance and salvation that he speaks of here isn't necessarily his deliverance from prison or even the sparing of his life, but rather the fact that he'll not be put to shame. That is, no matter what happens to him, whether he's released or whether he's put to death, he will have no regrets. Those who are preaching Christ from envy, strife, and selfish ambition were trying to undermine Paul's reputation and his ministry. They were trying to shame him. But Paul is confident. If he's condemned as a criminal, he has nothing to be ashamed of because he knows that he would have been put to death for the righteous cause of Christ and the gospel. And if he's found not guilty, and is then released from prison, well, he will still bear no shame for what has happened to him, because as he noted earlier, his imprisonment was actually cause for the further advance of the gospel. And so Paul knows with all certainty that he has nothing to be ashamed of, that his, his conscience is free and clear both before God and before others. As much as these opponents of his may try, they will not bring shame to Paul. He's so certain of this because since his conversion to Christ, his set purpose in life has been to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ verse 20 it says, With all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. In the past and presently, always, Christ is exalted and has been glorified in Paul's life and his ministry. Remember the first question of the short Westminster short a catechism is what is the chief end of man the answer being man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever now if this is the chief end or purpose for all mankind and indeed it is well how much more so then for the one who's been redeemed through the Lord Jesus Christ this is what's been the chief focus and concern of Paul's life and ministry that God in Christ would be glorified and exalted. The Philippians have witnessed this for themselves, this, this testimony in Paul. Even the soldiers uh, who are guarding him, the palace guard, they've witnessed it as well. And, and some have even been converted because of it. Because Paul seeks first to glorify Christ at all times and in all situations truly He has no reason to be ashamed. Love to God, what a great challenge for us. If Jesus Christ is the central focus of your life, if you truly and sincerely seek to glorify Him in, in all that you do, say, or think, if you seek to show your love to Him by diligently keeping His commands... What shame do you bring upon yourselves? None. You ought not to be ashamed. Now this is important for us to, to grasp, especially in our own day. Where we know that the truth of the gospel and the word of God is increasingly being assaulted. The attempt is being made to shame Christians for believing what the Bible says and being guided by its truth. And so terms like intolerant and ignorant and hate speech are being used to describe the very Word of God. You see, the world wants Christians to be embarrassed by the truth that the Bible reveals. Friends, there's no reason to be ashamed of Believing the Bible is the word of God and the only infallible rule for faith and life. No, in fact, if anything, the real shame belongs to those who reject it and who try to shame the believers. Because God's truth exposes their own sin. And they're shamed by it. Which is why they look to undermine it and assault and attack God's people. it's become clear that their guilt and condemnation before God is, is revealed by the very word of God which they reject. Hence is why they have such a strong reaction. If they had no shame, they wouldn't react. They wouldn't care. But you see, they do care. Because the light of the gospel is shining in their realm of Darkness. And the darkness hates the light and flees from it. But you see the sincere believer in Jesus Christ then though needs not to be ashamed because we stand in the light. We know what's around us because God has given us His light and His word and through His Spirit. So we ought not to be ashamed when people criticize us for believing what the Bible actually says. But it's this strong and certain conviction of Paul's that actually leads to the joyful dilemma in which he now finds himself. This dilemma is explicitly stated in Paul's confession in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this confession is how Paul has come to understand his life how he, in a very practical way, reflects his purpose and goal to glorify and exalt the name of Christ at all times. But it isn't easy. Even as his current circumstances have turned the spotlight on the reality of this confession, Paul may live or he may die, as he reveals in verse 23. And if the choice was his, well, he wouldn't know which to choose. He's hard-pressed between the two. But he knows, he trusts, and he believes that whatever happens, whether he lives or whether he dies, Christ will surely be exalted. And this is what makes this dilemma a most joyful one for Paul. Let's consider the two sides of this dilemma and the reasons why Paul is confident and joyful no matter what the outcome First, what does Paul mean when he says, to die is gain? They seem to strike us a little odd. What joyful gain could possibly come about through death? Well, for the one who trusts in Christ Jesus for salvation, the answer is, well, everything that we hope for. Through death, we leave behind the sin, the pain, suffering, sorrow, and tears that fill this life. No more temptations to to lead us astray. No more weak uh, bodies that succumb to to disease and age. No emotions of sadness, grief, anger, or despair that so easily can cripple us now. And though death will be bitter, well, it will be brief. And then it will be done and over with. We walk through the dark valley of the shadow of death not even alone through that walk. Christ Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is walking with us and He'll be there to receive us on the other end at His glorious table that He's prepared for us. And so the sin and suffering of this world is left behind at death. Also through death, rest and peace will come. Not only will the toil of the daily grind be permanently removed, but but even the work which God has called us to do in service to him will be finished and complete. And whether we've accomplished much or very little during that time that we were given, we'll finally hear those words of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And thirdly, it's by passing through the dark valley of the shadow of death, that eternal life becomes a reality. As Paul declares in First Corinthians 15, he says, What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Death for the believer in Christ is the gateway to eternal life. And fourthly, through death comes the fulfillment of all joy. As we stand forever in the glorious presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, where there again is fullness of joy. This full joy is marked especially by the greater level of communion and fellowship that we shall have with Christ. No longer will we see Him by faith. But again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know just also as I am known. This verse also shows us a, a fifth benefit gained through death, and that's a greater and more fuller knowledge of Christ, of, of God, of God's great love for us, and of the great mysteries of His creation, His Word, and His, his ways. We gain perfect knowledge. And six, a death will draw us closer to the anticipation of an even greater glory to come. Because at death we know that while our bodies return to the dust from which they came, our souls will immediately pass into the glorious presence of our Savior. But you see, that is only one step to the glory God has in store for us. The the final step will come on the last great day when Christ returns... And our bodies will be raised up from the grave. And they'll be transformed into new and imperishable bodies. And they'll be reunited with our souls. So that we will be fully glorified and perfected in Jesus Christ. And then finally, at least in Paul's case here, and for all those saints of God who have been and who will be, Unjustly put to death because of their faith in Christ. Having paid the ultimate price for following Christ and the gospel. Their death means that the gospel won't be silenced with them. But the gospel will continue to spread. And it will go forth to the glory of God as others are strengthened and encouraged. By witnessing their confident faith even in the face of death. And we see testimony of that uh, throughout. Uh, We see it in in the scriptures with Stephen. People uh, see how this man faced death and the stoning death. And and, uh, it was glorifying of God. And then in the early church, as Christians were severely persecuted and publicly put to death throughout the centuries. It was their confident faith in the face of death. And their steadfastness in Christ that proved to be a great witness. And people were amazed, how can they be that way? I want to know. And many came to faith in Christ because of those witnesses. And so the gospel is never silenced even in the midst when God's people are being persecuted. Again, these are just some of the great blessings and benefits that await faithful believers in Christ. And so no wonder Paul was hard-pressed. As he confesses in verse 23, the desire to depart and be with Christ was, was very great because it certainly was very much better. Very much better indeed. There's much we who are in Christ have to look forward to at death. But we need to be cautioned here. Be careful to approach this great desire with a proper balance. You see, because it would be easy to become so focused on these blessings and benefits that await us at death that we lose sight of the plan and the purpose God has for us here. And so as we long for these blessings, we must be careful that we don't selfishly and foolishly harry ourselves toward death. Not just by taking our own life, but, but even by living recklessly and, and not taking proper care of our bodies. right? Our bodies may be under the curse of sin, but this life that we have is still a gift from God. And our bodies are still the temples of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to glorify God with our bodies. Not to try to be rid of them. The treasure God has in store for us. All those treasures that we mentioned, that He has in store for us at death. They're not going anywhere. They're they're always going to be there. They'll be there for us when the time comes. At the perfect time when God Himself has planned and set. He'll call us, He'll call each of us home to Himself. And so we can partake more fully in those blessings. We don't need to rush ourselves to getting there. Secondly, we should be cautioned about yearning for death. Now this can be a great temptation, especially if we're greatly assaulted by trials, pain, and and even bodily affliction. Death isn't a solution to our troubles. Remember, death is God's curse for sin. It's a most vicious and bitter enemy, no matter when or or how it comes. And so we must not misunderstand Paul's words here. See, he's not longing to die. His longing is to be with Christ in the glory of eternal life. That's his longing desire. He doesn't want to die. He wants Christ fully and perfectly. A third temptation we must be aware of is that we must be careful that we're not so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. And you hear that often. God has given each of us a calling that we're to fulfill now at this time while we still live. And we ought to be faithful doing the work that he's given to us until he says enough, it's time, come home. We always ought to be busy doing the work the Father has set before us. And then a final temptation is just the opposite of the previous one. We must be careful that we don't hold on to things of this life as if we're going to be able to take them with us because we can't. We shouldn't fear losing what we have. Losing what God has given us in this life. Because we know that this is not the treasure that will last forever. We should also not fear death at all. (coughs) We should not fear death because of what Christ has prepared for us in his Father's house, knowing that there are great blessings far beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. And so Paul realizes all this. And this is why he expresses this great struggle. There's so much to look forward to after death. It's so very much better. But the other option, the other option is pretty appealing as well. To live as Christ. What does this mean then for Paul and for us? To live as Christ. First in verse 22 Paul says but if I live on in the flesh this will mean fruit from my labor. And so continuing to live on won't be a it's not going to be a holiday or vacation see there's much work to be done. Not dreaded toil but the joyful work of ministry of sharing the gospel of doing what we do for the glory of God. Remember Paul's set desire is to exalt Christ in all things and If he lives on, well, he'll have more opportunity to do just that, to glorify Christ. But again, this isn't easy work. There are many challenges, distractions, and discouragements. In fact, the reason Paul is in prison is because of his faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel. But despite all these, Paul presses on to do the work which Christ has called him to do. Again, what a challenge for us as a congregation of God's people. We may, we may face various setbacks and, and discouragements and, and challenges, but these shouldn't derail us from continuing to pursue the great commission which Christ has given His church. As we see here, Paul presses on with the expectation that ultimately his labor and ministry will be fruitful. And this is truly, it surely has been, even at this time, right? Even while he's in chains and in prison, his ministry continues to be fruitful because he's not given up on what he's been called to do. Paul's assured, and certainly we can be assured, that as we press on, laboring and ministering to the glory of the Lord, there will be fruit to those labors. It may not come immediately. It may not be the kind of fruit to expect, or may not come from where we would expect. But if we faithfully abide in the vine of Jesus Christ and do as he commands, we will bear fruit for his glory. That's his promise. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Well, secondly, to live in his Christ means that Paul will have further opportunity to bless and minister to others, including the Philippians, whom he hopes to see again. Paul clearly sees that by serving Christ, he must serve others also. He'll make this point again in in chapter 2, but here he acknowledges in verse 24, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And so Paul's great love and concern for the Philippian believers is revealed once again. He's he's so burdened for them and their needs that when weighing what's best for himself he realizes that the needs and concerns of others must be taken into consideration as well. It would be far better for him, for Paul to depart and be with Christ but it's much more necessary for him to remain on for the sake of the Philippians and, of course, others. So they still need him. Now, certainly the time will come when they'll have to carry on without him, but, but he begins to sense here that his time hasn't yet come. His desire to live on is not for himself, it's not for any selfish motive, but it's so that he might have further opportunity to minister to others. With such a desire, Paul goes so far to reveal in verse 25 his conviction that, his, that is exactly what will happen. Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. There was still much progress that needed to be made in the lives of these people. There's still fruit that Paul would have liked to have seen. And his work wasn't yet done. And he was confident that this was God's plan also. And from what we know of Paul's letters, it appears as though he was right. After this imprisonment, he would be released from prison for a time. And he likely would visit the Philippians again during that time. But eventually, he would be arrested again. He'd be thrown into prison again, and then eventually he would be put to death around 68 AD. But up to that time, not knowing when his death was actually going to come, right up to that time, Paul was committed (coughs) to serving others. Thirdly, for Paul, to live as Christ means especially to live for Christ. This is what he's described before. That his whole life purpose and drive is to see Christ exalted. This desire demonstrates itself in many ways for Paul and for us. It means that we strive to imitate the humility of Christ. Again, Paul will stress this later in his letter. To have the mind of Christ is to humble ourselves and serve Him by seeking to serve others and considering their needs and interests before our own. Living for Christ also means striving to grow deeper in our love and our knowledge of Him and His Word. We shouldn't be content with the status quo, but we should press on to grow, to be stretched, and to draw closer to the One who has given His life for us. The more we live, Christ, the more others should see Christ in us as we're transformed by God's grace into His image and His likeness. And the more we reflect the image of Christ in our lives and through our lives, well, the more our great God and Savior will be exalted. This is what stirs up great joy for Paul. And certainly it ought to stir up great joy for us as well. But beloved of God... Again, this isn't easy. Certainly when we consider death, even our own deaths and all that it would mean, how hard it would be to leave behind our family and our friends and and all that we hold dear, even knowing the great blessings that await us, we know that death won't be easy. But staying here, staying here on this side of glory and committing ourselves to living for Christ, that is, if we do it truly and sincerely, is surely much harder. It's much harder because our natural inclination is to make the goal and purpose of our lives all about ourselves. See, in our natural fallen state, we confess, for to me, to live as self, and to die is great loss. And as we pursue this motto, we look out for number one. And we're very self-serving and self-seeking. We trample over the needs and concerns of others in order to preserve our own. We try to avoid death as long as we can. We see it in the hopelessness of many in the world around us. But, beloved God, when we're redeemed in Christ, this confession of self and avoiding death, this confession should be changed to what Paul says here. To live is Christ, not me. And to die is great gain. But you see, living out this confession is hard. Because again, it's so contrary to our fallen, sinful nature. It's contrary to how we've been rewired because of the fall. Paul understands, and we should understand, that ultimately to live as Christ means that we must first die to self. That is, die to selfish motives, die to self-desires, die to, uh, to self drives. They must be given way to seeing Christ exalted in all things and serving the needs of others before ourselves. This is exactly how Jesus defines discipleship. And in Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And of course we know taking up one's cross wasn't just <clears throat> enduring a hard trial, it was death. Deny yourself. Put yourself to death, not physically, but put the selfish motives and the selfish ambitions to death. The old man of sin, put it to death. (coughs) Because it's only when we die to self that we can truly live for Christ. And it's only through dying to self and living in Christ that we'll gain the great reward that awaits on the other side of death. Again, beloved to God, this is a great challenge for us today. <clears throat> but we must remember we can't meet this challenge in our own strength. It's impossible. We need help, we need wisdom, we need strength because we can't do it on our own. With great joy, though, we can give thanks. Because we know and trust and believe as Jesus has promised us that the Holy Spirit will surely be with us. Christ will be with us. Even to the end of the age. Even through death. Christ will be with us. Present with us by His Spirit. He will supply us with the grace that we need. To endure whatever it is we face in this life. He did this for the Apostle Paul. The all sufficient grace and strength that we need to endure. So that this confession. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Might not only be the confession of our lives. That comes from our lips. But it is also that it also would be the reality of how we live each day so that the very name of Christ our Savior is exalted before all. Brothers and sisters, truly may the Spirit of Christ so bless us to be such instruments to bring all glory to God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for this word, this reminder And the calling that You have placed upon us through Jesus Christ. To live for Christ. To seek to glorify You above all things in this life. That we are to die to self. And deny ourselves. And follow after You. That we are to pursue Your glory and Your honor and Your praise. In every single thing that we do, that we say. And that we think. And that we're called to serve others. To bear witness to them. Of the glorious truth of the gospel. But we also thank you Lord. That in death there is great reward for us. Because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. We don't have to fear death. We certainly don't want to. Lunge ourselves toward death. But we don't have to fear death. Because we know that whether we live, or whether we die, it will all be for your glory and for our good. Lord, this truly is amazing. And we acknowledge only by your grace can we do this. Only by your spirit working in us and through us can we be such faithful witnesses. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us to be such witnesses even in our own community. And we see many people around us who who struggle. Who are having these challenges and difficulties. Who have no hope. Who fear death. And so we just pray, O Lord, that you would help us to be witnesses to them. That they might share in the hope and the joy, the everlasting joy that we have. We pray, Father, that you would truly impress these truths upon all of our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. That we might truly lift up and glorify your holy name in all things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.